0: morning everybody morning, Chris. my name is Chris I'm one of the pastors here at the church it's uh, wonderful to be here with you Gary prayed for my throat because he made me sick um, so it's all Gary's fault uh, yeah I got a little thing this morning but actually no he got sick before I did so um, and I just saw him this morning because he's back from vacation so it's not Gary's fault it's not Gary's fault but it's great to see you uh, guys I hope you're having a, a really good summer uh, we had a, a, a really exciting summer here um, in our kids program. Uh, this, this last July, we had two weeks of day camps here where we invited 170 children over the two weeks, um, and we just immersed them in um, an environment where they could learn uh, God's uh, good news story, the story of what God has done for them through his son Jesus, and uh, we had a great time of worship with them, and it was just So, so exciting to see the kids excited about the Bible and about Jesus. Um, One one, uh, boy in our church said to his mom after uh, camp, he said, Mom, I can't wait to meet Jesus. He sounds so cool. I just like, that's an amen for me. I mean, and I just wanted to thank everybody who was praying and helping. It takes like an army of people to do camp. So I just just thank you. If you had any kind of part... um, we were sowing seeds in these kids' lives, and we know it's going to bear fruit, and so we're just so excited about that. Um, if you do want to get involved, uh, this coming fall in our kids' ministry, I'm really uh, in need of some people this year because we're sending some of our volunteers up to Promontory, and so it's a call to us here in Chilliwack uh, to, to kind of shore up those needs. And so we'd love to hear from you if you want to work with kids, if you want to have an impact On the next generation. Uh, God has a plan not just for uh, every nation but for every generation and you can be part of that. Uh, So I just want to encourage you that uh, God wants to use you and if you feel a call we'd love to hear from you. So uh, come and contact one of us. You can fill out a serve form at the welcome desk and hand it in there as well. Um, Speaking of our kids, uh, last week we asked a bunch of our grade schoolers uh, a question about um, prayer. And we said, hey, write down uh, things that you want to pray about that are needs that you have. Uh, so I just wanted to read to you a few of the things that the kids wrote down, because these are our kids. These are the kids at our church. So um, I, there was like a hundred or so, so I just weeded through a few. Um, one of them said, I need more food. So I don't know, Some of you parents aren't feeding your kids. I'm not sure what's happening there, but uh, one said, I hope my friend believes in God. I oh, thought that was cool. Uh, one said, I really want to have a good teacher, at, I'm assuming at school. Um, one said, please help me get over my fear of heights. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, one said, I want more games. Yeah. Notice the word want kind of snuck in there. Uh, one said, I need my brother to stop being mean to me. Uh, one said, Lord, please help me not get hot. <laughs> not sure what that, I'm not sure what that's about. Uh, A number of them actually said, Lord, I'm worried. Yeah, there's a lot of kids are worried, fear. Uh, A lot of prayers for grandmas, grandpas. Grandmas, you got lots of shout-outs just to let you know. They really love grandma. Um, And lastly, a bird. One wanted a bird. So just said a bird. That's all they prayed for. I want a bird. We love listening to kids' prayers, right? Because they're so, uh, they can be sweet um, kids' prayer requests are, um, it, it's just the wonder of hearing children pray is that children pray whatever is on their minds and on their hearts, right? They just, here you go. And that's one of the joys. And I know that Jesus smiles on those prayers. He loves those prayers. He rejoices in those prayers. And yet we, we know that children can tend to treat prayer a bit like a wish list. Um, that they're asking Santa for, or a genie, that they're rubbing the lamp, and here, give me this. Um, And uh, it takes effort on our part as adults to help steer them uh, about how to pray, what to pray for, because they don't always know. They'll end up usually praying something for themselves, not necessarily for others. So we have to teach them and instruct them. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, as adults, we probably can be a lot more like children than we often think. Uh, We often, in our prayer life, can become self-directed, ritualistic, uh, treat God like he's our genie, just ask him for stuff for ourselves and um, stuff that we want, not necessarily need. We need help to pray well in a way that pleases God, in a way that draws us actually closer to him, in a way that is more effective in seeing his hand move through our prayers. And Jesus knows this. That's why he taught his disciples how to do it. And we call this prayer the Lord's Prayer. And we've been working through the Lord's Prayer this summer... Uh, line by line, uh, a sermon for every line, just to unpack the riches of this prayer that Jesus taught. Jesus taught this prayer in two places. I'll actually have you guys turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. And uh, it's not only in Matthew chapter 6, it's also recorded in Luke chapter 11, very, very slightly different. It's one verse different than in Matthew. But Uh, In Matthew's gospel, it's part of his Sermon on the Mount. And it's part of his instruction to many of his disciples on, on how to pray. He said, pray like this. In Luke's gospel, it's a different occasion where his disciples came to him and they said, Jesus, we need help how to pray. And he said, all right, pray like this. And he repeated that same prayer. So we know this prayer is an important prayer uh, sometimes theologians call it the Disciples' Prayer because it's actually a prayer he's teaching us, his disciples. But I just think, you know, guys, come on. You're never going to get the whole world to be convinced that this is now called the Disciples' Prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer, right? I mean, that's the way everybody knows it. I don't think it's going to catch on that it's the Disciples' Prayer. But just so you know, uh, that's what some think is that the real Lord's Prayer is in John 17, which we're going to quote a little bit later. But uh, this is the Lord's Prayer, and it's A model prayer to teach us how to pray. It's not meant to just be recited always alone, although that's fine, but it's here to teach us what kinds of things we should be praying for. So I'd like to read it to you from Matthew chapter 6 verse 9 to 13. It says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is In heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This morning we've reached right near to the end. We're at the line that says, Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. There was once a little boy named Alexander who was trying to save all his pennies. It was back when pennies were worth something um, to buy a baseball bat. But he had a hard struggle. Uh, One night when he was saying his prayers, his mother heard him say fervently, Oh Lord, please help me save my money for my baseball bat. And God, don't let the ice cream man come down the street. Now, there's a kid who understands, you know, how to pray, lead me not into temptation, right? He understands, you know, he needs to guard his soul, or is it his, maybe just his money? I think he's just interested in his money. Um, What does this prayer actually mean? I I was reading uh, this week on how many people over the centuries, Christians, have actually been very confused by this prayer, lead me not into temptation. Because if, you know, at first we kind of go, oh, I think I know what that means. But as you look at it, it really causes a bit of a problem for us. The way that it's structured. It seems to suggest that God, that we have to plead with him to not lead us into temptation and sin. It's like we're making a request of our heavenly father to stay his hand or else he's going to lead us somewhere that will destroy us. And, you know, for some of us, this might even cause problems because it already fits with this kind of poor view of God that we have that maybe we entertain in our minds. We know we shouldn't, but we do. That God is sort of a vengeful, spiteful God who is just waiting to get us and we have to sort of beg him not to hurt us, not to lead us into danger. It's true God is wrathful, he's vengeful on sin, but most of us would rightly so cringe at the idea that God is somehow gleeful or desirous to punish us or lead us into temptation. Yet what do we do when a text of scripture seems to indicate that, seems to imply at least, that God is going to lead us somewhere into a bad spot? How do we interpret passages like this. I mean, there's, there's lots more that we could dig up that are tricky passages in the Bible. How do we actually interpret them correctly? It's easy to just say, oh, I think we know what he means and move on. But how do we actually reconcile it biblically so we can come to a further and deeper understanding? I want to give you guys a couple of principles for biblical interpretation. Okay, there's lots of principles, but I want to give you two really important ones this morning. The first one is what we call context, 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 okay? In order to grasp the meaning of a passage of Scripture, you must seek to the best of your ability to understand the context in which the words are spoken. That means the literary context, the historical context, the cultural context context. In in this case, we know that lead us not into temptation is a request from God. We're requesting something from him. It is not a doctrinal statement telling us what God is like, though there is doctrine contained in it, but it is a request of prayer. Principle number two, we must interpret what is implicit by what is explicit. In other words, we interpret what is less clear in the Bible by what is more clear, what is abundantly clear. The Protestant reformers used to call this the analogy of faith. It's this idea that Scripture is its own interpreter. You interpret Scripture with other Scripture. Clear Scripture sheds light on less clear Scripture. So let's do that. If you have your Bibles, we're going to flip to a few pages. So, you know, or if you got it on a phone, you know, just scroll, whatever you got to do. We're going to look up some different passages, but I want you to go to James chapter 1 verse 13 for some very clear teaching, I think, on God and his relationship with us with temptation. Here's what James says in James chapter 1 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's pretty clear. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James tells us explicitly, clearly, that God does not tempt people to evil. He informs us that temptation originates from within a person's own evil desires, and it hatches and gives birth to sin. He reminds us that God is the giver of every good gift. And therefore, we should never accuse him of tempting us or seeking to bring us down in any way. God is good. He's always good. I hear a song coming on. God is good all the time. Matthew 4 verse 3 and 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5 also state that Satan, they refer to him as the tempter. So temptation has this push and this pull effect. There is always at the same time both an enticement that we ourselves feel towards sin that originates within our own hearts. There is also at the same time an outside tempter who is seeking to destroy us. These passages are explicitly clear regarding temptation. But let me just sum up what James is saying uh, with the words of Thomas A. Kempis in his book, The Imitation of Christ. Here's kind of how he paraphrases what James is saying. He says, The process works like this. First, The thought is allowed to enter into our minds. This is explaining how temptation works. Second, The imagination is sparked by the thought. Third, we feel a sense of pleasure at the fantasy, and we entertain it. Fourth, and finally, we engage in the evil action and consent to its urges. This is how little by little, temptations gain entrance and overcome us if they are not resisted at the beginning. And then he goes on to talk about how we have to fight it at the first stage if we want to win the battle. So let's go back to the Lord's Prayer. We can see that lead us not into temptation. is not making an explicit statement that God tempts us. It merely seems to imply it. But what does it really mean? We're back to square one. This is fun, isn't it? This is how we study the Bible. We just go back and forth and we figure things out. We put pieces together like a puzzle. And you know, sometimes when you're working on a puzzle, right, you got to start with the outside and the corner pieces, right? And you got to get the big picture and then you start to fill in the blanks. And so like, look, if you're, if you're just reading the Bible for the first time, you're like, what in the world is this book? I have no idea how it all fits together. Well, just keep reading. You know, if there's stuff you don't understand, keep reading, read more, read the big picture Get a sense, and then you'll be able to put those smaller pieces together in the middle. So what does it mean? To add another layer, the Greek word translated temptation in in the New Testament is also always, uh, it, it can be translated in two different ways. It can be translated as temptation or as a test. And when it comes to tests, it's abundantly clear that God Does lead us into tests and trials. We can think of Abraham being tested by God to offer up his son Isaac on an altar. We remember that Jesus in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, it listened to the language of his temptation. It says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil or tested. It was the spirit of God who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. But it was Satan who sought to turn that test into a temptation. It's the same in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are given a test by God. Do not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. There's a test there. But it is Satan who seeks to turn that test into a temptation. The point is that God uses tests to make us stronger, but Satan seeks to turn those tests into temptations. But not just any temptation. The word into in the Lord's prayer, do not lead us in, lead us not into temptation, is also significant. In many ways, we face temptations, I mean, every day, right? Like every day, there's like a thousand choices, right? And there's always, with every choice, you know, a temptation to go the wrong way. But the word into is significant. He's speaking about a very a special kind of temptation that we're led into temptation. If we think of Adam and Eve again. There's a general temptation that they've experienced as soon as they were told, don't go eat from that tree, right? I mean, all of us, when we're told not to do something, we feel that general sense of, oh, maybe I'll just go do it. Right, I mean, you got to fight that. But there's something else entirely when Eve walks by the tree and hears the tempter's voice and then walks into that place. There's a spatial reality here of her entering into temptation. So we pray, lead us not to that place so that we're enticed and drawn in. This helps us understand the Lord's Prayer. If I could sum it up like this, it would be, lead us not into temptation means, Lord, do not allow our trials, our tests, to be turned into temptations that will destroy us. Or, lead us away from temptations that will lead us away from you. That's my my best job. (laughs) That's what... This line means, John Owen said, temptation is like a knife that may either cut the meat or the throat of a man. It may be his food or his poison, his exercise or his destruction. God can use tests. Satan will try to use temptations. But here's the thing about this prayer. The very act of praying this prayer will determine whether what we face will be a test or a temptation, whether it will be used for good or for evil. We all know people that when they go through tests or trials, they seem to move closer to Jesus through that test, that trial. And then there's other people who, when they're tested in trial, they seem to move away from Christ. One question we can ask is, Is there prayer happening? Is there prayer happening for them? Are they praying for themselves? Perhaps one of the most subtle ways that the enemy does tempt us is that if he cannot pull us in one direction, he will simply use our momentum of resistance and push us the other way. You know how he does that? It's like a tug of war, right? You're pulling, pulling, pulling. And sometimes Satan will just go, oh, you want to go that way? All right, let's go that way. He doesn't care if you err to the left or to the right. If he can't get you to commit a sin of commission, he'll push you towards sins of omission. If he can't make you lazy in your work for God's kingdom, he'll push you instead to think that you can do all the work yourself, that you don't need anybody. Remember the way he tempted Jesus. Jesus responded to Satan's first temptation with Scripture. He said, nope, this is what God's word says. I'm not going to fall for it. And the next temptation, Satan comes back and says, ah, you like scripture, hey? I have a scripture for you. And he quotes scripture to Jesus. I mean, think about that. There are people, brothers and sisters, who use scripture in horrible ways. Satan doesn't care if you... Heir to the left or to the right. He will push you. He will pull you away from Jesus. And that's the point. It doesn't matter which ditch you fall into. You're still in a ditch. Uh, It reminds me of the story I read last June. It was in Christianity Today. It was an article titled The Success Affair. and It was a story of this guy named Jake. So here's what the writer said. So Jake's father was a successful politician and his mother was a lawyer. He had a proclivity toward philosophy and music and he looked like a rock star with his unkept hair, his flannel shirts and his tattooed forearms. Probably cooler than me. I don't have a tattoo yet, so I don't fit in really well right now in, uh, in Chilliwack. Uh, <laughs> while attending a large university... Jake began to spiral into despair, fueled by drugs and empty philosophy. He was introduced to an edgy Christian group. I love that, an edgy Christian group. I don't know what that means, but on his campus. And much to his surprise, he gave his life to Christ. So here he is. He's over an error. He's in despair. He comes to Christ. And that's wonderful. But our enemy is not through when we become Christians. Listen to the rest of the story. Jake's combination of intelligence and eloquence and creativity catapulted him into leadership in the campus Christian group. He connected with a local church. Upon graduation, he accepted the worship leader position at his church. He got married and he started having kids. Over the next eight years, Jake moved from worship leader to teaching pastor. The the church grew rapidly. In addition to speaking and teaching at the church, Jake became sought-after conference speaker. And as often happens, he began writing books. When Jake called Marble Retreat, his voice carried a mixture of numbness and sadness. He began by saying he had just been caught in an affair. And he'd been relieved from his ministerial duties and was staying at a friend's house trying to save his marriage. Could we help? Working with such couples, I found it interesting to note when the affairs happen. Often pastors get into their affair when ministry is going well. When they are achieving their ministerial career goals and dreams. Why is this so? Why would someone have an affair when everything seems to be going well? Well, we know why. Our enemy is always there. He had us over here, but if we come to Christ, he's going to try to pull us the other direction. That's what he wants to do. And so we must be on guard. And that's what this prayer is all about. So I want to look at this prayer with you, and I want to meditate on three things about this prayer In the rest of the time that we have. So um, firstly, I want to look at the motivation that compels us to pray, lead us not into temptation. And then secondly, I want to look at the temperament of the prayer. And then lastly, the benefit of this prayer. So it goes like this. It's a prayer of weakness. It's a prayer of watchfulness. And it's a prayer to a warrior. All those W's are for you. Okay. Just so you remember. I worked really hard to try to find the W's, so if you don't like them, that's okay. Um, I want to go to Matthew chapter 26, because there's a story in the Garden of Gethsemane that will illustrate, I think, this prayer for us in a very helpful way. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Matthew 26, verse 36 says, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, okay? This is his final hour. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful and troubled. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So during his 11th hour, Jesus was about to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes for his midnight trial, and Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him and his disciples. He knew they were going to be tested, and he wanted them to pray for their souls. Watch and pray, he said. That you not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. The flesh is weak. I want to zero in on that word weak. We are weak. We are weak. And that's our motivation to pray this prayer. You cannot pray this prayer unless you admit that you're weak. Spiritually, in your soul. To pray, lead us not into temptation is first to admit weakness. It's like the line in that hymn we just sang. Come thou fount. I love that song. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's what it means to pray this prayer. But first, before you can pray for God to seal your heart, you have to know that you're prone to wander. You have to believe that in your heart, that you're prone to weakness and wandering. And you might think, you know, especially if you're a guy here today, because guys don't like to be weak, okay? Um, Well, you know, yeah, I have weaknesses, but I, I have some pretty great strengths. But to that, there's only one reply. Whoever thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. King David, perfect example. King David was at the top of his game. He was the greatest king Israel ever had. One day he became complacent. He was supposed to go out to war. Instead, he just decided to sit back in his palace, enjoy his drinks, and I don't know, whatever. And then what happened? He saw a woman that he liked. He became complacent. He went for her, he fell into sin, he took the bait, and it was his downfall. It was a great tragedy. Samson, the strongest character physically in the whole Bible. But he had a stronger weakness. His story is tragic. Charles Spurgeon said, Every engineer will tell you that the strength of a ship should always be estimated, not according to her strongest, but her weakest part. For if the strain shall come on her weakest part and that be broken, no matter how strong the rest may be, the whole ship goeth down. Amen. However strong we think we are in this life, my friends, we we are only as strong as our weakest point. It's a recognition of our weakness that will lead us to call out for protection. We need protection from someone stronger than us. And I want to emphasize this is spiritual protection, not just physical. It's the soul that is in view in this prayer. Soul protection. Most of us, parents in the room, if we're honest, we pay more attention and we toss up more prayers for our kids' physical safety than their spiritual safety. Yet never in history has there been more outside influence being pumped into the hearts of our children than at the present time. Yet I would venture to say there's a great delusion in our world today regarding the need to protect our children's souls. I know this because children are more encouraged than ever to avoid physical danger. They can't even climb trees anymore. We won't even let them. I tell my kids, go climb that tree. It's good for your soul. <laughs> they spend far less time outside because we're worried about their physical safety. And yet at the same time, we have corresponding numbness to stand guard for their souls. Hey, Caden, get out of the tree. Here. Play with that. 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 Do you know what you're handing them? This is not a phone. This is a world full of stuff that they have at their fingertips. We just hand it to them. I saw a six year old boy at our kid's school with one of these. He was so happy to tell me he just got one from his mom. I said, what on earth do you need with a iPhone, kid? Oh, well, my mom wants to text me, make sure I'm okay right she's concerned about your body she's not concerned about your soul i see six and seven year olds routinely coming out of rated r movies and television many of them are already numb to its effects on their soul what are we doing biblically speaking god is far more concerned about our soul safety far more than their physical safety we're weak We need to pray for our children, not just ourselves. It's lead us not into temptation, right? Lead us. Pray for our children. We Pray for our own souls that God would protect us. Secondly, this is a prayer of watchfulness. The prayer is a prayer of watchfulness. This is the temperament of the prayer. The motivation is an awareness of weakness, but the temperament is an alertness to danger. To pray, lead us not into temptation, is to become watchful. It's to become on guard. It's to become alert. Look at verse 38 and at verse 41 of Matthew 26. Jesus first tells his disciples to watch with him. Watch with me. And then again, he tells them, after falling asleep, he tells them again, watch and pray. That you not enter temptation. Watchfulness is a very important theme throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's this great imagery of a watchman who stands at the gates of the city. And he stands guard, giving the first sign of warning if there's any danger that comes. It's a very act of praying that would have kept the disciples alert in the Garden of Gethsemane and ready for the spiritual dangers that awaited them. Jesus wanted them to stand as watchmen. Pray. So you're ready. I love uh, Psalm 130, verse 5 and 6. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Are you standing watching? Not just away from temptation, but also watching for God. Are you watching? Colossians 4, 2 Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Galatians 6 1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, though, lest you too be tempted. Like even when we're helping other people, we're supposed to be watching ourselves because we're so prone. Here's the great thing about this prayer. As you begin to pray this, you will become more watchful and mindful of the various dangers around you. The Holy Spirit will show you dangers that lurk. The Holy Spirit will make you more aware of areas in your life where you're getting complacent. And you will experience his quickening. It's like when mom is getting you dressed in the morning, right? You know, when you're a kid, you don't want to get dressed and you're just in your jogging pants and you're all haphazard. And she comes in and get your pants on and she starts dressing you and you get cinched up and you're ready for the day. That's what God wants to do. Spiritually to us, he needs to cinch us up sometimes because we just get kind of lazy and our shirt's hanging out. We got drool on our shirt and all this stuff. And we need his help. Lastly, this is a prayer. I want to leave you with an encouraging thing. I mean, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. This is a prayer to a warrior. This is a prayer to a warrior. We talked about the motivation for prayer. It's weakness. The temperament of prayer is a condition of watchfulness. But let's talk about God's ability to help us. We aren't praying to some limp God who can't help us. No way. We are praying to a warrior God who has fought in front of us. Just look at Jesus' struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke's gospel, it says that his sweat was like drops of blood. He is fighting and struggling as he prays. And Luke also tells us that even an angel appeared to strengthen him. I mean, this is war. Jesus was faithful. He was a warrior. He fought tooth and nail all the way to that cross. He faced intense temptation and he stayed true all the way. And then Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this and he says, in chapter two, verse 18, he says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's the, what he went through qualifies him to help us. Jesus passed the test and that qualified him to help us not only as our conqueror, but as our sympathizer, he understands. He went through it all. When you're being tempted, he, he understands. He's saying, like, oh, I never understood. He's God. He's perfect. Yeah, but he was tempted. He knows what it feels like. He's able to help us no matter what temptation we're facing, whether it's greed or lust, despair or pride, fear or anger. Here's what Jesus himself prayed for his disciples in John 17. He said, and he prayed this for us, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He prayed that for us. He prays that for us. He prays to his father on our behalf. He prays that we will be kept. He prays that, to the one who's the keeper of all God's children. He's a warrior God who has sovereign power to keep our souls safe. Listen to this prayer from the psalmist in Psalm 61. He says, Lead me, Lord, to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Those are encouraging words. He not only gives us saving grace when we come to him for the first time, but every day... Jesus gives us sustaining grace to get through daily battles. He will live inside of us and be our conqueror. I love how one author put it. Temptations, when we meet them at first, are as the lion that roared upon Samson. But if we overcome them, the next time we see them, we shall find a nest of honey within them. That's only because of our strong God. It's, it's that old song, right? That we sing to our children, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. We are weak, but he's strong. And that's where we can hang our hat. So let's do that.